uh, gracious God, you are uh, perfect, uh, and in you is truth. You have revealed your truth to us uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ and in uh, your written word, the Bible. And so we look to you to teach us and to reveal to us um, how to understand sex, how to understand relationships. Uh, Father, you're the only one in this room that knows everybody's uh, personal situation, uh, their uh, marriage, their singleness, uh, their sexuality, their brokenness, their uh, fears, their baggage. Uh, Lord, uh, you know us intimately and you love us and we thank you that you have uh, provided uh, true and full restoration for us in the Lord Jesus. And so we look to you and we ask that you would speak to us and that you would bless us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, on the 3rd of June uh, last year, a Scientific American released an article, and it was taken from, or the data at least, was taken from the peer-reviewed um, International Academy of Sex Research. Um, and they wrote about the concerning reduction in uh, sex within couples across the Western world. Uh, the study consisted of around uh, 4,500 uh, people aged uh, from 14 to 49, so across the, the age spectrum, or certainly a wide spectrum. And the article notes the significant, and, and I quote, decline in sexual activity around the world, it says, from Japan to Europe to Australia to the United States. Uh, and the study showed declines over a 10-year period from 2009 uh, uh, for the next 10 years. It says, in all forms of partnered sexual activity, the decline included men, women, couples, singles. Uh, reporting no sexual activity, whether alone or with partners. Interesting research. And yet at the same time, in the United States alone, the, the porn industry is worth somewhere to the tune of $13 billion. And over the course of the next number of years, artificial intelligence pornography is going to be increasing that market share, it's predicted. And the question is, what are we to think about? How are we to reflect on this conflict in information? Well, one thing we can think, and I think we can conclude from this, is that our culture and our society is both confused and conflicted about sex. And the question is, does the Bible have anything to say about it? And the answer, thankfully and mercifully, is yes. As we're going to look at this, if you're taking notes under two headings, firstly, sex is good and it's God's gift to his creatures. Um, the first book of the Bible, as Andy mentioned, records um, the creation of the world. Uh, God creates different things, uh, the earth and the sky, uh, land and seas, and then he fills them himself. The skies get shiny stars, the seas get sharp teeth sharks, and the land is filled with all kinds of creepy crawlies. Uh, and after this, this forming and this filling, uh, God declares that it was good. And the icing on the cake in God's creation was mankind, male and female, made in his image. And he creates them, and then he tells them to fill the earth. How? Well, sex, of course. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now, maybe... Um, you're not from a church background, um, would you have thought that the first command to humans out of the mouth of the living God was have sex? Surprising, right? It's quite, I was quite surprised. 
Um, the only way to increase the number of people on the earth, the only way, uh, the sure means of filling it is to be fruitful through multiplying. It's sex. And amazingly, at the close of this day, which Andy helpfully read for us, God declares this was very good. So God says sex was very good. Again, I wonder if that's surprising to you. Perhaps you've not spent much time reading the Bible. Maybe even in your mind, Christians are definitely not the first group of people that you think of uh, that might have a, a, a sex positivity. As we mentioned before, I think we live in a culture that's got confusing and conflicting and even contradictory views about sex. And, and I think we can say that that involves and includes some within the church and within church history. Some say that sex is simply it's an appetite, like eating or sleeping. Others say it's an animal passion to just be resisted and buried. For others, it's just a romantic um, engagement to be exercised with the person of your choosing. Really, consent is all that's required. Sex, in a biblical framework, has a much higher standard. It's not simply an appetite. I think we instinctively know that, don't we? That the intimacy act is not the same as watching somebody eat a burger or take a nap, right? It's not a commodity uh, to be given away or to trade it freely or lightly. It's to be honored and cherished. Sex is, in a word, sacred. I know that's a churchy word, sacred. It basically just means special to God, dedicated to God. How? How or why is sex sacred or, or special to God? Well, it's not merely the act itself, but it's all that it represents and accomplishes. Intimacy, commitment, oneness. And it's sacred for the following three reasons, if you take in notes. Number one, sex as procreation. Okay, so for most of history, the connection between sex and procreation was obvious. And it wasn't really until the 1960s and the invention of both the contraceptive pill and legal abortion procedures that sex could in some way try to be disassociated from the process of procreation. But the reality is that sex is sacred because with God, it co-creates a new soul. One that will last forever. I have the privilege of being a father to three children. And my fourth is arriving in two weeks' time. Pray for me. <laughs> they are born not, not to fill my head or to fan me with praise or to grow my family. They are principally born to worship the living God. That is the ends for which they were made. And I am simply a steward pointing them to that purpose for which they were created. And if you're a parent, that's your purpose too. You see, one of the great purposes of sex is to bring worshippers of the living God into this world. That was God's command, wasn't it? Fill the earth and subdue it with image bearers that worship me, that sing my praise, that live in harmony and goodness. So sex is sacred. It procreates. Secondly, sex is sacred. It delights. Now, in some ways, this is something that our culture can probably say, okay, I understand that. I get that. Even... Uh, Christians here can say, I, I understand sex as delight. But I think sometimes we can miss the point. Because sex, a lot of the time, both in the culture, and we must confess sometimes in our own lives, even in Christian marriages, can be wholly self-focused. Listen to any modern music, 
on sex, whether it's Marvin Gaye or Cardi B, it's both disgusting and it's self-focused. Biblical sex is, is other-centered. Now, the whole, the whole Bible centers on the living God, on his revelation of himself, and God in himself is other-centered. Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally existing in a, a, in a, a worship and a glory and a self-giving of joy and purity. Uh, later on in, in the Bible, in the New Testament, one of the, uh, the first Christians, a chap called Paul, he, he writes about marriage. And he, and he quotes one of the passages that was read to us earlier from Genesis chapter 2. In this book, to a, a letter to a, a church in, um, sorry, in, in this letter, which is recorded in the Bible, uh, to a church in modern-day Turkey, he writes this. If it's in Ephesians 5, chapter 31, he says, For this reason... A man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's in quoting Genesis 2. And he says this, verse 32, This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So Paul is point, talking about marriage in this context, and he's saying there's something about marriage that points to the reality of God's relationship with his people. That's what he means by Christ and the church. And in quoting Genesis 2, I take it that Paul, as he refers to this mystery, it's some, somewhere in his thinking that this marriage picture includes something about sex. Now, we don't want to push this too far, but he quotes that the two become one flesh. That's what he says in, Genesis, in Ephesians 5. And so sex, in a very real way, points to the eternal ecstasy of soul that believers will have in heaven with their heavenly Father, with God, through Jesus. In fact, I would go uh, as far to agree with uh, one uh, pastor and teacher that's gone to be with the Lord now, Tim Keller. He says this, Sex mirrors the joy of relationship in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have existed forever in self-giving, other-centered, and joyful love. Sex is sacred. It points to a truth about who God is. Thirdly, sex is, I was going to call this ceremony. I've ended up calling it, oh, it's not even on there. Next slide, please. There we go. I don't know if you can read that. Sex is covenant renewal. You could just, if you don't like that word, you could just call it ceremony. One of the principal ways that God deals with his people is through something called a covenant. And then when I'm teaching my children what a covenant is, it's simply this. It's a promise of a relationship between God and humans guaranteed by his word. A promise of a relationship between God and humans guaranteed by his word. And regularly and repeatedly throughout the Bible, God's people will, what they'll do is they'll gather together and they'll renew the covenant with God. They'll kind of reread the terms of the covenant, the promises and the conditions and the blessings to remind themselves of God's promises to them and their commitments to God and to one another. Call it covenant renewal ceremonies. In fact, if you've ever been in the church before and you've watched Christians do this thing and thought it's a bit weird, eat bread and drink wine, that is exactly what they're doing. We call it the Lord's Supper. And the bread and wine, they represent the, the, the selfless sacrifice of Jesus to his people. And as his people take the bread and drink the wine, we remember Jesus' promises to us and our commitments to him and to one another. 
And as we do that, in the act of taking that, our oneness with him and with one another deepens. Now, Genesis 2 that we read from recalls a covenant. That's what marriage is. Marriage is a covenant. It's a promise of a relationship before God and with one another. The two become inseparably one flesh, both spiritually and physically. And sex is the physical expression of the spiritual reality of that union. You know, you may have heard of um, couples, um, years after marriage, uh, getting to renew their vows. Great excuse for just another party. Uh, great excuse to invite friends and to go somewhere fancier and to, and to disinvite all the people that you invited to your first wedding. <laughs> um, you can tell I've been thinking about it. And, um, and, and to recommit, ultimately, the, the idea is to recommit your pledge to one another, your vows. You're recommitting your fidelity, your love, your vows. Sex is a covenant renewal ceremony for marriage. It's the physical reenactment of the inseparable oneness in every other area of life, whether it's economic or legal or personal or psychological, that is created by the marriage covenant. Sex both renews and revitalizes the marriage covenant. So what have we just seen? We've seen that sex brings souls into being. Sex points to the delight in God. And sex recalls and proclaims the reality of the unity within marriage. And that is why sex is good. That is why sex is sacred. Now, if you have walked in off the streets here, if, you are, if you've been invited with a friend, you may be thinking, what on earth? I wonder, let me ask you a question. Is, is your view of sex, is your understanding anywhere near this? Is it anywhere as high and as lofty as this vision? Does this surprise you? We'd love to talk with you more about that. Please come and grab me afterwards. I'd love to have a conversation, maybe read these different passages of the Bible. It would be great to talk to you. I also want to speak here to Christian married couples. Do you know this truth? Is our vision, our picture of this view of sex as high as this? Do we have a theology of sex? Because not only is this view really countercultural, but actually as we begin to understand this as our view of what sex is, we approach it entirely differently in our marriage. So we want to know this. We also want to be able to talk about this, put into practice our understanding by firstly talking to our spouses, talking to close friends about this reality, maybe talking to a pastor. And thirdly, we want to live this out. We want to know this truth. We want to understand it by conversing with one another. And we want to live this out. We want our knowledge of sex to lead to understanding and to be applied in wisdom in our marriages. And a quick diagnostic test is, are you having sex regularly? Raise your hand. No, I'm joking. Don't do that. <laughs> is the reason maybe that you're not having sex because you're spending so much time in fasting and prayer? Maybe. Most likely not. Let me push it a little bit further. Maybe there are some in here that say, but I just, I just don't feel like it. I know this is a sensitive subject. Let's think of three points that we can pray if you're one of those people. Number one, if you're the person that says, I don't feel like it, or there are some other concerns. Number one, you could pray for a desire for sex. Some of you in here are thinking, why do people need to pray for a desire for sex? Well, some people need to pray for that at times, okay? Pray for a desire for sex. As Christians, if we believe... Um, 
the reality of the goodness of this, then we want to be committing it to prayer. And if we believe that God is in the business of changing people, which he is, through his son Jesus, through faith in him, then sex is not off the cards either to be changed within our marriages. So we want to pray for the desire. Secondly, pray for the removal of distractions. For those with busy work schedules, young children, teenage children, these things can all work against us having a healthy pattern of sex life within our marriages. Pray for the removal of distractions. Thirdly, we can pray for delight. There's delight in sex. Um, Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 says this. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you be ever intoxicated with her love. Now you could change the, the being you know, intoxicated with his love. Or, you know, either way, the Bible has a high view of finding delight in intimacy in your spouse, in your partner. And mutual enjoyment of one another increases emotional connectedness and builds trust. But we want to pray for delight. So firstly, sex is good. It's a gift to his creatures. But secondly, sex is good and God's boundaries are for our flourishing. Sex is good. God's boundaries are for our flourishing. Now, a football match without a referee, as you well know, uh, descends into chaos. A nation without laws descends into anarchy. So too, sex without boundaries can be both harmful and destructive. And so we're going to look at two particular boundaries that God gives. Number one, it's for marriage exclusively. Since the 1960s, there has been a battle, a war on the goodness or the usefulness of marriage. Uh, it was seen as a bind upon women, and no doubt some experienced it in that way. And the promise of the revolution was that we would throw off the shackles and enjoy the liberty of a sexually unrestrained life. The promise was liberation and joy. I wonder how you think that is going in our culture. It's not been liberating for the 125,000 babies that are aborted annually in the safest place or the safest place that it should be for them on this planet. It's not been liberating actually for the almost 400,000 young people that get STIs each year through multiple sexual partners, increasing at 20, a rate of, uh, well, last year was a rate of 25% increase. We read earlier from Genesis chapter 2, that is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife and the two become one flesh. This picture of marriage was affirmed by Jesus Christ in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 19 verse 5. And these boundaries, this particular boundary, lifelong exclusive covenant faithfulness is given by God for our good and for the good of the rest of society. It's for the good of babies in the womb, it's for the good of society at large. A group of people that certainly did not find liberty in the decline of marriage, interestingly, is women. Not only did they suffer the fallout of those two statistics that I mentioned earlier, abortion and the spread of STIs, but Louise Perry uh, concludes in her book that it is women who have lost out most to this new sexual ethic. Uh, she wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. She's a feminist author, uh, and as far as I know, she's an atheist. And she catalogues how uh, it's women who actually, by and large, have desired security and intimacy over this hookup, uh, responsibility-free uh, encounters. 
uh, yet they are the ones who have had to, by and large, get with the program. And incredibly, one of her applications in her book as the thing that could be good for women is marriage. Now, there is so much more that can be said concerning the boundary of marriage, uh, the, uh, the boundary of sex for marriage. Uh, marriage is the place where there is emotional and personal uh, and psychological intimacy where this union is expressed. It's the safest place for children to be reared. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, um, uh, sex without marriage is likened to tasting without swallowing and digesting. No good. No good for the health. No good for the development. Merely tasting. So there are boundaries within marriage. The second boundary I want to talk about is between male and female only. Now, we've mentioned earlier the obvious and undeniable connection between sex and procreation. And, but within the male-female relationship, it was read to us in Genesis chapter 2. I wonder if you picked it up, but there's complementarity. It's really helpful. This jumped out as it was read again as I was sat down there. But notice this uh, in Genesis chapter 2, of verse, I think it was 24... No, it was, anyway, I can't find it right now, and this, this is feeling like a long time as I'm stood up here. So it was the word, uh, the word in my translation as well said um, there was suitable, a suitable partner. Uh, the, another translation was a, a complementary Okay. There is a complementary goodness in God's creation of man and woman that, again, for most of history, has seemed obvious. And if we see, as we've talked about, the positive view of what sex is in the context of marriage, given by, uh, as a gift from God to his creatures, then we can see all the more clearly why same-sex practices are condemned within God's word. Now, the Bible is extremely clear in this regard, both in its positive view of heterosexual marriage, but also in its denunciation of same-sex practice and relationships. Now, again, I'm not speaking to faceless and nameless people. There are people in here that struggle with this reality within themselves, within families, and so this is no light matter. But if we try to reread the Bible in any other way, we do serious damage, both to ourselves, to the truth of God's word, and to the church. Now, this is not a popular message. Sexual freedom in, in some ways in this culture is promoted as almost a human right. And yet the Bible in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 22, says explicitly, not to have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, both male to female and female to female same-sex practice is treated as sinful. And there are further references in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1.10. And we don't want to go through all those, but the Bible is clear on this. And the call for someone who experiences homosexual temptation is firstly to come to Jesus in repentance and in faith and to experience his deep love and his forgiveness and his power to transform and to heal. 
If you are here today and you're a homosexual and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or maybe you're here today, you're bisexual, or you're not a Christian and actually you're just participating in numerous sexual encounters, they are not your principal issue. They are not our principal issue. Our principal issue is our rejection of God's lordship over our lives, our rejection of the truth that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and our unwillingness to bow our knee and to submit to him in every area of our lives. Jesus Christ is Lord, and he has set a day where he's going to come and judge the world in righteousness by the standard that he has set. And he's calling all of us now to bow the knee and to come to him, to be born again, and to let his ethic for sex and relationships and intimacy be our guide, not our cultures, not our own preferences. And the promise is that when we come to Jesus, when we bow the knee, when we ask for forgiveness, we're given a new identity. God is now our Father, as Andy was just reminding us. We can cry out Abba, that personal and intimate claim. We have Jesus Christ as not just our Lord, but our Savior and our friend. We have his spirit who comes to live with inside us and he, and he changes us. He, he guides us and he teaches us how to live a life for him in all areas. And we have the church incredibly as spiritual brothers and sisters to guide and to love and to pray and to fellowship, uh, to, 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 to love us. And having come to Jesus, the call on your life and my life is to live out this new identity as it's been gifted to us. And to pray for self-control and for transformation. And do you know what? My experience, transformation doesn't come as quickly, quite as we would like it. But ultimately, it's coming one day. That's the promise. Now again, if you are here as a guest, I, I wonder what your thoughts are about this. Uh, maybe you're visiting from another church. Um, do you know what? Actually, as a member, I often I wonder what your thoughts are on this reality. And no doubt your own personal story interacts with this teaching. Perhaps you're one of the, the countless women that has been coerced or forced or bribed or been objectified into sex. Perhaps you're one of the men who has done the coercing, done the objectifying, or you spent more time than you care to admit falsifying intimacy through a screen or through some other medium. Because sex, like every single one of God's gift, again, as Andy mentioned for us earlier, it's been distorted, it's been bent in on itself. Whether it's sex for sale or obtained by extortion or by force, it's cheapened and commodified. And yet Jesus came, the reason he came, one of the reasons he came was to rescue sexual perverts and compromisers. He came to rescue adulterers and homosexuals. He came to rescue transvestites and traditional womanizers. He came to rescue people of all kinds of sexual perversions and persuasions by paying the penalty for our sexual sin upon the cross. Innocent though he was, he hung as a guilty convict upon a Roman cross. Sexually pure though he was, he hung in the place of the sexually promiscuous. And there is forgiveness and there is wholeness if you're willing to turn away from sexual sin and to turn to Jesus. There's grace and there's mercy for those who are willing to recognize that we're sexually broken and to turn to God. And you can do that today free of charge. No one's going to ask you to do something weird or get involved in some weird cult thing. 
Jesus wants to offer you forgiveness and transformation of the things that are burdening you, of the things that the Bible says that we're enslaved to. And he wants to give you wholeness and peace. The gospel is good news. The gospel, that's the message of Jesus dying on the cross and rising again, is good news for the sexually broken. Now, as I close, I want to say one last thing. And it's this. This is probably the most important thing that I will have said in this whole message. Is that God is better than sex. God is infinitely better than sex. Because what you and I crave is unbroken intimacy. A depth of love and understanding to be truly embraced in mind and body and soul. To have the depth of our person, of who we are, our being, to just be understood and to be loved regardless. That's what we crave. That's what we love. And the lie of the culture is that free hookup sex is the thing that will give you that intimacy. And the lie of the church at times is that it can be found in marriage. But the truth is that it can be found alone in Jesus Christ. Union with Jesus is where true intimacy is found. As we pass from death to life, those that believe in Jesus, we become like him. The most rapturous love between a man and a woman is only a hint of God's love for his people in and through Jesus Christ. And the high point of intimacy, brothers and sisters, and those listening in, the high point of intimacy is when we have unhindered union with God, when we see Jesus Christ face to face. Every ache removed, every stain cleaned, every fear stilled forever. Longings that we have attempted to fill elsewhere, filled by the God who we'll find out was always there, always present. True intimacy, true love, forever and ever in pure, blissful worship of the God who came and rescued sinners, undeserving, and yet welcomes them into his life. What joy, what a privilege, what an incredible reality for all those that trust in Jesus. If you're not doing that now, will you consider this? It is the most important thing that you can do in this life. Please come and speak to me afterwards. I would love to have a conversation. Hopefully it won't be awkward. Um, but let me pray. And I'm going to invite the band up. Just take a minute to reflect on what you've heard. I realize that we have touched on a number of things and that we have baggage of sex in our marriages, in our singleness, in our relationships. God had and has a good design for it. In and through the gospel, he's transforming it. But it ultimately points to the intimacy that is available to everybody through faith in Jesus. Father, you lavish good gifts upon us day after day, hour after hour, year after year. And we thank you. We thank you that you are a generous and 
a lavish God who loves to overflow kindness, not only to your people, but to even those that reject you and don't know you. Lord, you're so kind. And we thank you. We thank you for uh, the gift of sex. We thank you for the goodness of its boundaries. Uh, Father God, we pray and ask that you would um, help us as your people to understand uh, the depth and the reality and the goodness of your gifts towards us. Lord, would you help those here that don't know you to see the, the beauty and the wonder of the intimacy available with you through Jesus. And Lord, we pray that uh, as a people, we would, we would love you and honor you with all that we are. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.